I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hi, listeners. It's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name, and as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. Hi, listeners. Corey here. I'm popping on before the episode starts to give a warning that 
due to an equipment snafu, my audio is a little funky. It sounds like I'm on a phone call with Elise. I am not on a phone call with her. The wrong microphone input was selected, so that's why it sounds like a phone call. The audio is fine otherwise, but before we get comments about audio quality and our reviews, I wanted to come on and acknowledge the error. And that's it. So sit back, relax, lend us your ears, and enjoy the episode. Hi, Corey. Hi, Elise. How's it going today? It's going really great today. Yeah. Uh, in case, well, we are recording this the day after President-elect Joe Biden was announced, so I'm incredibly happy today. I am also incredibly happy and relieved today. Yes. But now we're going to get into something a little bit more stressful, and that is our first topic of the Macbeth series. You came up with this one, so I would love for you to introduce it. You were really excited sure. to talk about this. Yes. So the first topic is on King James the Sixth of Scotland, King James the First of England. But when he wrote this, he was King James the Sixth of Scotland, and it is his book, Demonology, in form of a dialogue, divided into three books. It was printed by Robert Waldgrave, printer to the King's Majesty, in 1597. And this book is particularly interesting to the Macbeth series because, as we discussed in the intro series, Shakespeare wrote Macbeth to please the new king from Scotland. And this book on demonology is a lot of the basis for the witchcraft in the play. So I thought it'd be a perfect one to start out on. I don't know. I also think that like ghosts, demons, witches is very fascinating because of the social implications of mm -hmm. witchcraft. That's why I picked this as the first topic for Macbeth. So demonology. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess now would be a great time to talk about why James wrote this book in the first place. What I learned from, from this book was that King James was an incredibly paranoid person from his childhood. Like he was pretty weak. He needed help from like the first, I don't know, six years of his life being carried around places because he was just a weak child. He used his mind a lot. He, he was more of a intellectual than he was, say, like a knight or anything like that. But when he ended up getting older, he became fascinated with the witchcraft trials because he thought that witches were actually trying to plot against him and his marriage to a Norwegian princess. Queen Anne. Queen Anne. The reason why he thought this was because when he was going over to Norway to go pick up his queen-to-be, I think that they actually had already been married. But Queen Anne and King James were married by proxy initially, which meant that he had somebody go stand in for him. Originally, the plan was that Anne would come from Denmark, Norway, and tried multiple times and kept running into storms. At one point, a boat sprang a leak, and she just could not get out. So King James ended up having to travel to Denmark because it was taking so long for her to get to Scotland. And also he was anxious about looking weak because he was waiting for a woman, which sidebar on that misogyny for a moment. Mm -hmm. um, and he still encountered some storms and uh, ended up having to stay in Denmark from that fall to the next May. And the first Danish witch trials occurred just after King James and Queen Anne left Denmark. But there's no, like, concrete evidence that, like, anybody discussed witchcraft with him. But it was something that was definitely kind of percolating over there and may have been influenced from there. There was also the trials over there, specifically 
I forget what the exact title is, but he was like the head admiral of the Navy and accused him of being a witch because or engaging in witchcraft because he was in charge of the boats. Yeah. So it's like, oh, okay, you are a part of this problem. And it's like, he's not really. And and I do know that part of the thing was that people were not happy in Scotland or in Denmark about King James marrying Anne because this was a Protestant monarch and a Mm -hmm. Protestant princess. So it did worry Catholic factions of England and Scotland that two Protestant families would be united and then that would further suppress the Catholic freedoms that had been won during Elizabeth's reign. So I wonder if that also has something to do with like the reason why there were people being suspected was because people were not in favor because of the whole religious freedom aspect. Like James was a staunch, staunch Protestant. And he thought that, which we can just, we'll discuss more in demonology, the book, but he was a staunch believer that everything that had happened prior to Protestantism becoming the religion of England and Scotland, he thought that everything was um, sinful. He frequently insults the papistry. He was very much like, my religion's the one. Yeah, the Presbyterian Church was very strong in this time. And there was, it's kind of like mixed. Like, while he was very like, yes, I'm a Protestant, he was no Bloody Mary, for example. He was much more mm-hmm. like Elizabeth, like, eh, live and let live. We're Protestant. We're Scottish. You know, like, there was a whole family who are credited with starting the witch hunts and news from Scotland, Mm -hmm. who were probably Catholic because they maintained a Catholic chaplain in their household. Mm -hmm. It was just like this idea that like, hmm, some of that Catholicism stuff, a little bit like witchcraft. And there was like a little bit of a resurgence in the 1580s and 1590s. So the Presbyterian Church had a huge interest in being like, no, some of the stuff is very similar to magic. Remember, we're the true church. Mm Mm-hmm. But you are right that, like, there was this drama over them being married, also from the Presbyterian side, because King James wanted to have Queen Anne anointed like he was and to go through the, like, ceremony. There's a lot of theater because the ceremony essentially, like, establishes a direct line between the monarch and the almighty. Mm -hmm. Hardline Presbyterians were not comfortable with any part of that because it seemed too Catholic. It's, oh, it's because it seemed too Catholic. Catholic. Okay. They weren't okay with things like pictures of saints or the Catholic ceremonies because they felt like, like... the um the communion. Yeah, transubstantiation. They're like, mm. So because so much of the investiture ceremony is about like making the profane holy, making somebody who's human on earth holy, and this is like the very hardline Presbyterians, we're like, uh, we're not comfortable... But at the same time, King James is like, I'm the king. I'm going to, I want what I want. And I can do what I want with the whole conflict, the drama that really flings James into the throes of witchcraft and witchcraft trials and his paranoia. It's like natural storms. That just is what it is. It's like Norway. It, it The weather mm-hmm. is pretty crappy. Yeah. And then you have the religious uh, divide between Catholics and Presbyterians. And it's weird to think that the then logical to him blame is not on Mother Nature or religious factions. It goes to witchcraft, particularly, most importantly, mm-hmm. women that are accused of witchcraft. Oh, yeah. There are men who were also accused of witchcraft. And I don't I don't think that people think about that quite as much. Yeah. But the Kirk, which is the Scottish church, mm-hmm. had these judiciary systems they were kind of just trying to seek 
better power and to create a God's kingdom in Scotland. And unfortunately, the king wasn't going out and like killing Catholics and was like, no, Catholics aren't that big of a threat. Also, like maybe Queen Anne may have been practicing some Catholicism in secret. They were like, we need like a different threat. Something. And that became not only a conspiracy against King James, but a conspiracy against Protestantism. I didn't read much about that. And that's a strange connection. It's just, let's pick something that... Because then what they ended up doing with the the North Berwick trials is stirring paranoia in James Mm -hmm. that he previously didn't have. Yeah, These local churches set up, how do we deal with questions of like how to recognize and punish the sinful? How can the sinful harm the godly? Witchcraft became this simple answer, for lack of a better phrase, because they also wanted to do away with these older practices that weren't Mm -hmm. Protestant and they didn't feel were godly, which they attributed a lot of Catholic practices to paganism. So this is actually from witchcraft. Those got labeled as something that they weren't. And what that does too, I just wanted to connect that to demonology because basically like what James writes in his demonology is basically saying there is no good witchcraft. Everything is unlawful. Everything is against God. Mm -hmm. And the only people who can be protected are yeah. the people who are the most severe who mm-hmm. go out seeking, which gives people incentive to become witch hunters. And the only way to deal with witches is to kill them, torture them and yeah. kill them. And what was unique about specifically the North Berwick trials, but kind of witchcraft in Scotland at this time, was that there were these two sets of accusations that happened. The common people, for whom witchcraft was like this kind of folklore you know, before 1590, there was a lot of like eccentric definitions of what witchcraft was. Like a lady who said she turned herself into a badger. It went from like this kind of passive or like folkloric, like the fae exist around us and like there is magic that exists around us and interacting with them is witchcraft, but the person isn't a witch. To like actively political, like witches themselves are the servants of the devil. The devil is in control. Mm -hmm. If God can have servants on earth, such as the king, then logically the devil can too. Very early on, it is like these accusations that stem from disagreements between neighbors or suspicions. You know, someone saying like, oh, you know, your son's going to come down with a cold. And then the son does and dies. It's like, my neighbor's a witch. Really, your neighbor just noticed that he's running around without a scarf and it's Scotland in winter. Yeah, anything that would just be good advice medical advice, women who Mm -hmm. who use herbs and anything that could be attributed to paganism, any healers. Healers were all of a sudden called witches. And if you were known in town as being a healer, anybody who was trying to peg something on a witch would just look to the healer and say that she's a witch. And then everything is bad now, according to James. So, And then there's this politically maneuvering accusations of witchcraft, like using witchcraft as a political device to attack an opponent. Because it's not really something that you can come back from, right? No. You don't necessarily have a basis for accusing someone of it, but you do it and all of a sudden everyone looks at you and goes, oh my gosh, you're this. There was no coming back from being called a witch. And another factor in witch hunts was poverty. Witchcraft was attractive because the devil promised women material security. Not like in wealth, but in terms of absence of want, they could provide for themselves and their children. And that was the poor women and men as well. But apparently, according to James, 
the ratio of female witches to male witches was 20 yeah. to 1. And the reason behind that is original sin because of Eve. Yeah. Which is fascinating to me because like at this time in Scotland, women weren't completely without power. They could inherit money and property if their father had no male heirs. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, there was a relatively decent amount of social mobility for women, especially when they were young, because lower class women, even beggars, could travel a lot. There was a lot of business between town and country that was done by women in markets. So, like, you know, as you mentioned earlier, like women, Mm -hmm. they had this oral culture that passed down through generations, knowledge of healing and medicine and traditionally possessed involved areas where magic might could operate, such as, you know, they worked with animals, which could die unexpectedly. They worked with the ill, who could also die unexpectedly, and children, who could also get sick and die, and food, which can be poison. Yeah. Yes. So by proxy, there just is more likely a chance of them being around somebody who you could say, that person you were healing, and they got sick, therefore you were a witch and you poisoned them and killed them based on your feelings with the devil. It's just, it's all based on proxy. It's all based on your status and what you were responsible for. Yeah, and then some women use this knowledge, like healing, to make money. And also because they were uneducated, they relied on these old practices, this passed down knowledge rather than, Mm -hmm. you know, newer, flashier political and cultural influences. Men wanted, you know, Scotland to, like I said earlier, be like God's kingdom in Scotland and Mm. seeing what women were doing as more like not okay. Yeah. At the same time, what they were getting into was something that was uh, ended up becoming very misogynistic and going backwards. And that's something that James talked a lot about was how the Elizabethan era was steering too far from the scripture. And he was a super duper by the Mm -hmm. books kind of person. Like he interpreted that literally. men are seeking more religious power and to create a kind of religious power state, one thing that they can do to seek more power is to sublimate the women in their society. And then if women go stepping outside of this new power structure, the easiest thing to do is accuse them of being a witch when they could have just been going out, getting drunk and having fun or healing Or making their own money. Exactly. So, Mm -hmm. And the weird thing, too, is that based on the the book I was reading, he did a footnote on the term witchcraft and the origin of the word witch is not really known. So there are a lot of possible origins for the word. Use having said that, you know, women were saying, hey, yeah, I'm a witch. It could have been also based on the fact that there was no concrete origin and people were taking taking the word however they wanted it to be. Some women liked the power that came with it the idea of like yeah i'm going to step outside of the bounds of this society that i don't fit in anyway and make money for myself and own just own it which is fine like especially if you're you know the witch of a village and nobody's accusing you of killing anybody you know i'm sure it's probably like a really good gig you got there yeah it's a good gig until and you got you got your own money you live single in your own house Yeah, exactly. You've got your cat, you've got, you know, whoever, whatever animal you've got. But then, you know, James is like, no, there is no good. There's no light magic. It's all dark. It's all from from the devil. And the word witch has a couple different origins where like in Anglo-Saxon etymology, Wicca is the term for male witch and Wicca with an E is female witch. There's also like Indo-European roots, weak, W-E-I-Q, meaning violent strength. 
There's also Anglo-Saxon Witka, which means prophet, soothsayer, or wizard. The word Witka, which is from Witan, means to see. And then the Anglo-Saxon word Witan is to know. So basically, if you're taking the skeet etymology, it means someone who is knowing or wise. So I kind of think that James might have decided to take whatever version of which he wanted to use that would politically work best to Mm -hmm. go on his white knight quest. Whatever's, whatever was going to like get his power a little bit stronger in Scotland, because in specifically the witch trials that influenced the writing of this book, Demonology, were in Edinburgh in late November 1590 to December 1591, and over 70 people mm-hmm. were accused of witchcraft during the little bit more than a year. Mm-hmm. This specific 1590-1591 trials were unique because the king and the Privy Council got involved. And so there's like a lot of documentation around what happened and what these witches were accused of. And they're called the North Berwick Witches, even though none of the witches Mm -hmm. are from North Berwick. That was the Kirk, right? It was the North Berwick Kirk where the alleged Sabbath took place. Yeah. So then I guess this would be a nice time to just... Let's get into the North Berwick witch trials because that is the, that's pretty much the basis for James's entire fascination, obsession, paranoia with witches and sorcery and magic that leads to his book. It leads to the Witchcraft Act of 1604, which increases punishment for witches and greatly, greatly affects many people because everything that Elizabeth had done in her reign to loosen, well, technically I think that Henry VIII you know, he had some laws against witchcraft, and then he dropped them, and then Elizabeth brought them back, but they were not as intense as when James became king, and the trials greatly affected the horrible future that was his reign. I don't know. I don't know if his whole reign was terrible, but this part of it was pretty bad. Okay. So these were specifically about this idea of, like, a convention of witches, and they're significant because... They also were the first to establish this idea of a widespread theory of witchcraft and knowledge of its practices across Scotland that permeated through class and different levels of society. Yes. Most accusations of witchcraft and witchcraft trials prior to this one were very, like, one-off, you know, someone cursed someone. In this one, authorities worked together to link individual cases and reports together to create this large-scale mm-hmm. witchcraft event that was, yes, you know, this conspiracy against King James. Yes. It started with an accusation of a healer and a maidservant named Gilly Duncan, who was tortured into a confession of witchcraft, a popular practice where, like, applied set of thumbscrews were put onto her fingers and she had her head bound and wrung with a rope and it was a popular torture that was done by her employer, David Seton, or Seton, David Seton, and... Or Satan. Or Satan. Yeah, David Satan. Mm-hmm. I really do want, just quick sidebar, um, this is the family that I was talking about earlier. Satan Palace was used as a, or Seton uh, was used as a prison and is like at the location of these trials in News from Scotland. And I do wonder if that character at the end of Mackers, why is it named that? Is it a reference to this exact family? Especially because when, we, when we're talking about all of this and we're saying that, at least for me, when I look at like Shakespeare use this as inspiration, I don't believe that Shakespeare totally believed in this or totally believed that women should be prosecuted in this way. It's just he was like, hey, this is something. 
But what can you pull what out of this? What can you pull out of it? And there could be coded messages like putting Satan, you know, David Satan. Yeah. One of those things of like we talked about earlier, those like little things for King James to be like, oh, mm-hmm. oh, I, I hear that. Oh, I, I know what that is. Or anybody who's read demonology mm-hmm. or read news from Scotland would possibly like get the reference. David say Satan, Satan. Yeah. He um, accused his this servant, maid servant of being a witch because she was going out at night when she didn't do it before. It was like she disappeared. And he'd be like, where is she? And then she would come back and the modern reading of this is probably that she was, um, you know, maybe going out and meeting a guy or doing something. And maybe these had, you know, more jealous implications like David Seaton had a crush on his mm. maid servant. At the same time, though, she had also apparently learned some healing techniques and was coming back into the house knowing more stuff that were healer related. And he took it upon himself to accuse her of witchcraft. Through torture, she admitted to being a part of a Sabbath meeting in 1590, and that's where this all kind of stems from. The accusations soon include 70 people. King James is completely shaken by these trials and the alleged magical plot that was used against his marriage, and he creates the Witchcraft Act of 1604 that actually were not repealed until 1736, which I found very wild. Uh, Within the time period that people were being accused, one person that was being accused specifically was Agnes Sampson. Do you read about Agnes Sampson? Bits and pieces, kind of like more of like... Yeah. So I'd love to hear more of like, here's what they were accused of. Yeah, so there were rumors circulating that the actions of all of these witches was motivated by the royal ambitions of Francis Stewart, the Earl of Bothwell, who you mentioned. It was said that he had a claim to the throne if James did not have an heir. And so in a very Macbeth style, he was possibly trying to kill James for his own political gain. Agnes Sampson, after hours of torture, and she was a healer in the, um, and she was a self-proclaimed witch in town. She was tortured for hours and um, maybe days. I don't remember how long it was, but either way, she confessed that the Earl of Bothwell played a part in the witchcraft against James. And then that he came to her. Yes. For, yes. I did read this and that he like came to Agnes for help plotting was what she admitted to. Is that well, right? Well, the thing is, I'm a little confused okay. because he, well, he was known to be a powerful magician. He was supposedly a necromancer. He spent a lot of time in Italy. I don't know if he was in Italy during all of this, but Agnes Sampson said that he was the leader of this Sabbath that included 70 witches that took place on Halloween of 1590 and he was the leader gilly was there playing the the um the jew harp sounds really anti-semitic to say it but it's a it's like a mouth it's harp. A, exactly yeah so yeah. she was playing that agnes sampson was there there were a lot of other people that were said to be there and the thing too that's crazy about these witch trials is that it was not limited to the poor people like agnes sampson who was just a regular old healer there was also like Barbara Napier, who was a... I did get all these names, but I could not, no shade on the editors of my book, but it was really hard to track. She basically was involved because she was, she had some title. She was married to somebody well-to-do and uh, somebody claimed to have seen her at the Sabbath. And that's what it was. A lot of it was like, these women were accused of having gone to the Sabbath, drinking wine, dancing, kissing the buttocks of the devil. I don't know why that was how it was, but... Barbara Napier was said to be there. Um, So it it was mostly a lot of women just accusing each other of having been there because they're being tortured and they want to get all of the witches. And so if you say someone 
James said too that like the only person who can properly uh, have a testimony for a witch was a witch. So basically, women would have you know they they would have the fingernail tort the what is it called when you get your nails pulled off. That's a nut. I don't I don't know the real name, but I, I get the picture. You get the picture of it, or like um, there was a guy that was accused. He was a teacher in a town nearby, and he was said to have been the secretary of the Sabbath. And so all these people were accused, and they all were confessing and admitting to each other. That's pretty much where a lot of that stems. Um, the Earl of Bothwell is interesting because there's also, beyond these two witches, there were so many politically advantageous reasons for him to end up accused. Mm-hmm. Whether or not they accused him, or maybe it was suggested, like, did you see him there? Yeah, I'm sure that it was a seed planted. He was James's cousin, and he had a legitimate claim to the throne, whereas James was, you know, very, as you talked about earlier, studious, intellectual. The Earl of Bothwell was a little bit more, like, rambunctious and got into trouble. He was a little bit out of hand. So it was very politically advantageous for the church and the government to partner and get him accused of witchcraft Mm -hmm. and defeating him would just, like, put the nail in that coffin. And no longer a, a bunch of stuff was just kind of, like, put into... It, like, falls into place. If you're trying to figure out how to sabotage someone, you're like, okay, well, he's already this, he's already mm-hmm. that, he's already this, we can then accuse him. And, yeah, and also, one thing about the trials is that much of the structure of the of his ideas of, of what had happened was given to him by Agnes Sampson, the one mm-hmm. I mentioned, who was the midwife and healer, and um, she basically provided detail about magic practices that she didn't practice, but she had knowledge of. She basically had learned it. She didn't practice it. And that basically gave James the entire basis for how the Sabbath went down and the threat that witchcraft has on society. And I was reading that apparently Agnes Sampson, while she was a healer, instead of her actually having magic, she could have just been kind of like a fortune teller where she can pick up on your cues and she can give you information Mm -hmm. that she knows you want to have. One thing that made James believe her was that she, I guess, whispered in his ear something that Anne said on their wedding night. There wasn't much description about that, but apparently she was on the nose about it. And scholars think that she was just good at reading people and she she just knew what to say to him to convince him. Because I don't really know exactly what she got out of this because she wasn't going to be released. She's a witch. Yeah. she got to die. So um, it's interesting because Bothwell was... He was just stripped of all of his titles and land. He was a witch? He practiced witchcraft? He, I know he, he was a he necromancer. He didn't practice witchcraft. However, he denied the accusations, and I guess because he was who he was, they were like, okay, maybe not. But mm-hmm. he also like stormed the castle, tried to kill one of King James's counselors, and capture King James. That failed and led to King James writing Elizabeth and synthesizing the treason with witchcraft in that letter. This kind of alighted Bothwell with the idea of, like, he's actually the devil, the reason behind any and all political and religious opposition, period, and we're stripping Bothwell of title and land, and Bothwell just, like, ended up roaming Scotland for a while. He was still, like, accused, but never put to death. He ended up... That's what I was going to yeah. say. He didn't. He went to Italy, didn't he? Um, I didn't read that, but... I, I read that he was just still okay, kind of, like... I think... He was out there in the world and then um, continued to, like, remain a threat... Eventually, in 1593, a few years later, staged a successful coup. Couldn't go through with killing King James, but just said, uh, I'll let you live if you give me my land and title back and acquit me of witchcraft. And that happened. Oh, I didn't know that at all. That's that's such a bummer for all of the women who were accused of witchcraft. Yeah. 
the thing that I didn't know, so there's this stereotype that we have of like a witches being burned at the stake. I guess that wasn't really what was commonly done. I think in Scotland, it was a more common practice to burn witches at the stake. But in England, it wasn't. And by the time we get to the North Berwick trials, Scotland also mm-hmm. wasn't burning witches at the stake. They would strangle them and then burn them. Reading about all of these women yeah. who were accused for no reason other than, say, a jealous employer or being a healer or maybe having like a cat that someone, you know, accuses you of having a familiar. And then Bothwell, who actually had a vendetta against James, gets off free, basically. Yeah. It is such a, a bummer. You know, one thing that fascinates me about Bothwell is this idea of this kind of like outgoing devil incarnate kind of person versus King James, who is, you know, God on Earth. And it makes me wonder if there's a connection between those two personalities and Macbeth and Macduff in setting up, you know, Macduff is kind of like not a self-insert, but perhaps somebody who King James would see himself in. Possibly. And that would make sense, too, because Shakespeare would have known. So the Book of Demonology was the basis for the witches and the prophecies. But the news of Scotland would have given Shakespeare all the information about the people that were apparently allegedly plotting against James. And the Earl of Bothwell is mentioned in there. Agnes Sampson is mentioned in there. Gilly Duncan is mentioned in there. It's basically a report of the true facts of what had happened during the trials. He would have had access to all of that, I would have imagined, in London. So he very well could have taken some of these names and these personalities and been, okay, so um, we know that Macduff is the James figure. Who can we Mm -hmm. mirror this on? So that'll it'll give James this feeling of satisfaction because he was trying to get the favor of the king. Yeah. So essentially, yeah, I, I could totally see that. And yeah, it all all of this ends up being the formation of the argument that he's making in demonology, right? Mm-hmm. Being like, here's what we've learned about witchcraft through our witch trials. Yes. Here's this theory yes. of witchcraft. It exists. Here's how it works. Here's how it should be punished. Exactly. Yeah. He he creates this very um. Who was it? Was it Socrates that did the conversations so- between? Oh my gosh. All of the- yeah. <laughs> I had the same. Yeah. Reading yeah. it, it's set up as a conversation, and I had the exact same. Yes. Um. I was like, we talked about the influence of the Renaissance. Here it is. Mm-hmm. I was like reading uh, Plato's allegory of the cave. Is what I wasn't reading that alongside it, but instantly I was like, this feels like I'm reading the allegory of the cave again, because that is also a conversation between two people, a student and a teacher. And one is asking questions and one is talking about this topic. And it's a written down version of a... Providing the answers. Socratic method Mm -hmm. of teaching and its rhetoric. It definitely is. And he he builds these characters. One of them is Philomathes, also sounds very Greek. And he is the student... And then there is Epistemon, who is the James-like expert on all things demonology, all things witches. And I mean, when I think about it, I actually kind of start to laugh because it's just so ridiculous that somebody got away with doing this. And and reading this, he also contradicts himself quite a bit. And he also like, I don't know, he, he provides a lot of very poor arguments in my in my opinion, yeah. but it's it's fascinating to read. So this entire book is incredibly biblically inspired. But yeah, he breaks it down into three books. He provides the arguments, mm-hmm. and then he breaks it down into chapters. So the first book is the description of magic. And 
he basically, like, his argument is that the scripture proves that witchcraft can and might be practiced. And has always been. That's the other thing. Is it's not new. It's been around mm-hmm. since Saul, Paul, mm-hmm. Job, and things like that. And he's like, all of this is witchcraft. Therefore, yes. it has always existed. It's always been something that, like, you know, God has been fighting against. Mm-hmm. And here's kind of what it looks like now. Exactly. And there's two main types of witchcraft. There's magicians and witches is how I kind of, those are the two. He also talks a lot about necromancy. Yeah, magicians and necromancers versus sorcerers and witches, I think is how he, and magicians slash necromancers, it reminded me of Prospero in The Tempest, mm-hmm. somebody who uses magic. The thing with magicians, think Prospero, is mm-hmm. that the devil will serve them as a friendly spirit who will bring them, you know, all these many delightful dishes. And that's why I was like, that literally happens in The Tempest, is that yes, Prospero has Ariel and Ariel's shadows or... It's like familiar, yeah, like a spirit. Bring out a tricky banquet for his enemies. So this book obviously did not just influence Macbeth. So the devil serves them for his own purpose. But like, the question is like, if magicians are the master in that if they are the person who's calling the shots then like are they in control of the devil and it's like no because ultimately the devil is like playing the long game with them and he's going to like inhabit their bodies when they're dead (laughs) and they've sold their souls for this and then witches are like the um servants the devil is calling the shots with them servants um it's not long game it's like nah they're mine Exactly. Mm-hmm. They don't have they don't have the agency that a, a magician would have. So the magicians are more like learned, so they're more Very. educated. It's kind of classist as well that the magicians have these books of knowledge that they study. Um, so there's also talk about a school of witchcraft. Your rudiments. You can just go through your elementary education in witchcraft and mm-hmm. still be a witch. Yeah, they have their knowledge that's passed down, like you said orally with herbs and stones that's the big difference between the two of them but there is also in witchcraft some women because it was also very classist as well there were the poor witches who sold their soul for more financial means and then you have the women who were accused of witchcraft who would have like had titles and theirs Mm -hmm. was that they sacrificed their soul to the devil in order to get revenge on people it was more like they would have been dead as the, the entire concepts that he created were very sexist and very classist, breaking them down. That might be why Lady M and the witches are so different. Like, I would see Lady M more as looking for, you know, the crown as well. But um, I was listening to something today where, you know, a lot of the reason why the women were portrayed the way that they were portrayed in Macbeth is because James had such a misogynistic view of women because of original sin. So that's why the women are witches or they're like Lady M who basically bites the apple. Yeah. I guess if you see her unsex me here speech as like a conjuring, a inviting of spirits mm-hmm. to or some darkness to basically take her soul and operate her, then yeah, she would be a little bit more on the necromancer, magician side of witchcraft. And then the witches are, you know, they are not in control of this. And then you get like the Hecate scene and then, oh yeah, they're like barely middle management. They really are. Yeah. And then they're also the ones that mess up royally because they were doing things that they had no control over. They had no right to do what they did. Yeah, They're not, you know, doing things with summoning 
mm-hmm. to create apparitions, they have to go through the, you know, creating this spell in a cauldron with a bunch of different ingredients. It's not the same as saying, come you spirits. It's very, very different. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, too, because like the way that the witches apparently became witches is that the devil would visit them, I think, three times before officially making them a part of his servant class. I wonder what it is that the witches would actually get out of their practice with the devil in Macbeth. Yeah. Do they have anything that they actually seek or they're just Um, the plot device for Macbeth? I think there's like the idea of the real person who chooses to engage and then what they become, if that makes sense. So to me, they're doing their master's bidding at that point. I know that one does talk about revenge because um, she has a whole monologue, the Aroint the Witch Oh, with the with the you ship. You know, I'm going to with the ship. Um, I'm going to you know seek revenge on this lady who insulted me. We don't see a lot of it, but there are like little bits about who these women are, mm-hmm. and what are they doing? And the mo- I think the most we get is that one, and maybe all of them, you know, kind of did this for power and revenge a little bit because they have yeah. that ability. That's the only thing that we really see them as individuals, and I suppose as plot devices. King James didn't really care about the reason why any of the witches would be doing anything. Yeah. They would just be doing it because they're evil when they have something against... Yeah, and yeah. the devil is commanding them to do this. They pick the wrong person to tell the prophecies to. Mm-hmm. Demonology is trying to explain, like, why would someone choose? And then by the time, you know, when Shakespeare's writing Beth, it's like, we don't need to know why the witches chose this. We need to know why Macbeth chooses to engage with it and seek it out. Yeah, and witchcraft was like a well-known thing at the time period, so maybe people would have been better learned on it than we mm-hmm. are now. They would have already kind of yeah. understood some of these reasons behind it. And if it. seeking out witchcraft is just as bad as practicing, then Macbeth is just as guilty as those three women on the heath. I highlighted a note that I thought was very telling for um, the witches, because the witches in demonology are said to, basically through the devil, he lies to them, and so they then prophesy. A lot of the times what he'll do is he'll end up whispering things and letting them know what's going to happen so that they can then tell the future. Or he'll carry their spirits. So like a woman will be, you know, a witch will be lying down and her spirit will be traveling to other places in the world so that she gains knowledge that no one else will get and then comes back and can spread that information. And he says, um, the devil will foretell many great things, part true, part false. For if it were all false, he would lose credit at all hands, but always doubt some as his oracles were. And that reminds me of the witches who are telling oracles that are mm-hmm. half true. Half- that equivocation. Yeah, I caught that. And there I was it is like, again. okay, okay. And that's something that directly applies to the play Macbeth. But not only are we going to have equivocation, but the witches are going to do it. We'll have people equivocating all over, but specifically the, that's the how we're going to do it. The witches are going to do it. Even Banquo says it. Oftentimes to win us to our harms, the instruments of darkness tell us truths. Win us, win us with honest trifles. And that's that right you know. there. Yeah. And th- I mean, the play also has spirits and ghosts. And James talks about that a lot. He talks about them actually as spirits who the devil has occupied a dead body because the spirit is absent. And he only haunts those who need pray and atone for sin. So like when we see Banquo, Banquo is basically based on this kind of philosophy being possessed by the devil to come and haunt Macbeth. Well, that makes a lot of sense of why do we see Banquo mm-hmm. when no one else does? Or why why does the ghost of Banquo not talk? It's like, because it's not actually 
Banquo or Banquo's ghost, it's the devil inhabiting Banquo's body, maybe. Mm -hmm. That would be like an interesting Mm -hmm. choice. Yeah, yeah. And they don't really get into it. It would just, nobody explains it in the play. It's just kind of as like he's there and and it doesn't matter. Like as an act, like for an actor Mm -hmm. to know. To make that decision now would be. How would you act it? How would you act it if you're not, if you know that, if you're not just haunting your friend, but no, now you are also the devil. The devil, yeah. Banquo is not there at all as the spirit, because basically the, the philosophy that had been built in demonology is that the body and the spirit are now separated. So mm-hmm. your body is buried or whatever you do with your body, your spirit goes off and does its thing. And then now the devil has free reign if it wants to occupy your body and use it. And it doesn't affect what happens to your spirit, because you are no longer at fault for anything that the devil does inside your body when you're dead. And also, he also mentions that no good spirits come about and no one's haunting their friend out of good. So we know automatically that the only thing Banquet can be coming into um, the banquet scene doing is haunting because Macbeth is a sinner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I found that very fascinating because, yeah, it totally, it totally changes the way that I look at the banquet yeah, scene. Yeah, like, is it, well, since, like, nobody else can see it, it must be a good spirit haunting someone who's done wrong, right? Is that? But there are, there are, there are no, are no good, good there are no good spirits haunting so, like, you can't have your friend haunt you because yeah. they want to hang out with you. The only time that you're haunted is when you're sinning and someone's coming to either scare you and get you to turn away from sinning. Or if you're already a good person, what it does is, in James's mind, it ends up mm-hmm. challenging you to see if you are as good of a Christian as you are. That gives us the ghosts of Banquo and the ghosts in, like, Hamlet of, like, mm-hmm. which of these two reasons? Because you don't get haunted for any other mm-hmm. reason. Are you good and trying to be pushed towards something or are you bad or are you leaning towards bad and someone's coming to warn you? Yeah, exactly. And I wonder, too, because there are ghosts in other Shakespeare plays. I wonder if he even used the demonology as a Mm -hmm. foundation for, say, Hamlet, because when you look at Hamlet, Hamlet is a character who needs to get revenge for his father Mm -hmm. who was wrongly murdered. So you think that this ghost is a good ghost. Doesn't it, it kind of complicates, it kind of juxtaposes the same thing with like Prospero. Prospero existing contradicts the idea that there is no, there's no yeah. lawful magic. All magic mm-hmm. is bad. So then I think that Shakespeare probably wrote this because he knew specifically that it would just, James would geek out over it and it would confirm his, his identity. It would confirm his, his persecution of witches. The strangest is Donald Tyson recounts, when James got into his older life, he wasn't so sure if what he had done was right. He wasn't so sure if witchcraft actually had existed. And then when he was on his deathbed, his his servants wanted to preserve his soul by putting it into a pig through witchcraft. Really? Yes. When I look at all of this, it's like the entire book is just a way for him to justify the paranoia and give other people license. Justify what happened in mm-hmm. Scotland and that there was a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Witchcraft is a bigger deal than we thought it was. Here's how it works. So you can figure it out yourself and help me fight all these evil people. Then it like gets to a point where it's like, well, now that you know the church is more powerful, we're not seeing these witches any like it kind of becomes like, no, maybe we we don't have witches. And it, it becomes unpopular. There's like four years straight in Scotland of a second round of witch trials. And then people are like, just stop. Like, we can't do this anymore. You know? Can you imagine that kind of just, I mean, the guilt that one would feel <sighs> if they've been doing this their whole lives. And all of a sudden, it's like, no, that was not the right thing to do at all. 
and all of it happens because of the witches, because of the devil. This entire play would not exist had the witches not come to prophesy. And through it, they fully tell half-truths, half the equivocation. And that just shows you that you should not make a pact with the devil and you should not kiss his butt at a Sabbath. Ooh. Moral of the story. Women did, apparently. Don't kiss the devil's butt. What they would do is they go to the Sabbath, the devil would pull down his pants, and then the woman would kiss his cheeks. I'm not going to kink shame anyone on this podcast. No, 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 no. If, you got, no. if that's what you got to do to secure that bag and, you know, not live in poverty, mm-hmm. you do you, girl. Take that coin. And really, that's what it is, is that the women accused of witchcraft were just doing what they were doing, and James and the other men didn't like it, and... yeah. This was a this was just like such a fascinating read for me to dive into. Yeah, and and it's it so yeah. much. Because so much of it like, you know, it's it's all insane. At least to me it's all insane what he's writing and how he views the world. The the writings and the justification of of a man who's just paranoid, but it made it made such a difference for, you know, however many I years. Mean, it helped, you know, solidify the church's power in Scotland. Yeah, made him super paranoid. He had a right to be. People were actively trying to kill him. And I guess, you know, if you're trying to figure out motive behind that, witchcraft is an easy out for that of like, well, they can't be good Christians if they're trying to kill me, actual God on earth. Apparently there was this, another plot against him. I think it was the Gowry plot. And in the Gowry plot, he said that one of the people that was attacking him had symbols of the devil on him or something like that. So I, I I don't know if like, I don't know if he's seeing magic everywhere because it's been planted in his mind. Yeah. We also don't know how much he was lying. And yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's hard to, it's hard to tell from 400 plus years away. That's true. That's true. What book specifically, because we read different editors takes on demonology. So what did you read? And then, and the Neil share. Yeah. yeah, I read The Demonology of King James I by Donald Tyson, and this book also includes the original text of demonology and news from Scotland. So it's a big old book where Donald Tyson translated it. Uh, this book has a ton of footnotes, very well researched. They put all of this into a historical context that made it clear to see how people of the time were justifying or why they were confusing certain things. So, I mean, I, I loved it. And there's so many things that in the reading of the demonology, which I do not recommend actually reading it, there's so many archaic terms that no one's going to know. What about you, Elise? I read Witchcraft in Early Modern Scotland, James the Sixth Demonology and the North Berwick Witches, edited by Lawrence Normand and Gareth Roberts. This had a edition of demonology that had also been edited and it's not like complete translation but made a little bit easier to read because i tried reading the original and it's like that was a lot of uh, early modern english to sift through so it has been made easier lots of footnotes like half the pages footnotes and then um there's a bunch of front material about the witch trials that informed the writing of this book what would you give this reading of demonology out of five. Uh, in terms of a deeper cracking open of this play that I thought I had already like thoroughly explored, four out of five. I found a lot of things that I was like, whoa, I never recognized that in the play. Ease of read? 
Ooh, this is no light reading. I would give that like a 1.5 out of 5. This is yeah. very dense. In terms of like, was King James absolutely ridiculous? That would be a 10 out of 5. Whew. I agree that the uh, ease of this read was, I would say, a 1 out of 5. I did not enjoy picking up the book and reading the conversation. I enjoyed Donald Tyson's footnotes. Incredible. Yeah. So your the book surrounding demonology, what would you rate that for you? I think I give it a five out of five. Super good reading. I'd love to see like a play about or something about these. The North Berwick witch trials. trials. Yeah. I was thinking that too. Is like we already have we have the crucible, but this is something this else. This has got like political intrigue. Yep. This has got magic. This has everything. I want a mini series. Anything else? I don't know. Yeah, the gist is witches exist. They always have. They do magic. They do magic, and the only way to deal with them is to severely is to kill them. them and to kill them. Yeah. So on that note, I'm Courtney Smith, and I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare. Anyone? Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare. Anyone? Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash Shakespeare Anyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare, any, and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Romeo and Juliet, Act 5, Scene 1, Spoken by Romeo. And in his needy shop a tortoise hung, an alligator stuffed and other skins of ill-shaped fishes, and about his shelves a beggarly account of empty boxes, green earthen pots, bladders and musty seeds, remnants of pack thread and old cakes of roses, were thinly scattered to make up a show.